0: This afternoon we'll be dealing with the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And in connection with that, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25 to 34. Matthew 6, verse 25 to 34. You'll be able to find that on page 11, 17 of your pew Bible. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things." Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So far, the word of God. Let's now read together from Lord's Day 50 of the Heidelberg Catechism, in which we're given an overview. Lord's Day 50 of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which you can find on page 562 of your book of praise. What is the fourth petition? Give us this day our daily bread. That is, provide us with all our bodily needs so that we may acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good and that our care and labor and also your gifts cannot do us any good without your blessing. Grant, therefore, that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in you. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever considered the Lord's Prayer as a gift of God's grace to you? The disciples, when they were traveling with Jesus, knew that all of the other teachers around them taught their people, their disciples, how to pray. They also knew that the average person who comes to God to pray for the first time has absolutely no idea of how to go about it. When they were sent out by Jesus to preach the coming of the kingdom, they would run into many people who may have officially believed in God as that was the common religion of their day, but they had no real understanding of what it meant to speak to Him. You'll get the same today if you meet the average person on a university campus. Even in our secular atmosphere today, you'll find many there who label themselves as Christian, Catholic, or otherwise. They'll say that they believe in God or a God out there, but as they come to know the reality of God and to draw near to God in a personal relationship and express the desire to pray, it becomes clear that they don't always know how to go about that. And so they might ask you. Now Jesus' disciples wanted to know clearly what to say if any converted people came to know the truth. Knowing some things of the prayers of other teachers and groups around them, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They wanted to make sure that when they taught people to pray, it was something that made sense within the framework of the teachings of Jesus. That when someone asked them, How do I pray? They could speak to them knowing comfortably what they were talking about. And there was only one way that they could learn that, to look to the one who was wisdom from God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And so just prior to our passage here in Matthew 6, Jesus gives them the greatest gift, the structure for a prayer in which they could address God as our Father the prayer by which they could enter into the throne room of God in Jesus' name and petition our King. Now, up to this point, working through the Lord's prayer, petition by petition, we have seen how we glorify God by our prayer. Your prayer starts with adorning God and giving all honor to Him. It starts with an appropriate recognition of who he is and an admission of who we are in relation to him. It expresses our need for God's will to be worked out in our lives, for it alone is good. Having worked through that over the past number of weeks, we now move into the requests. Although the other three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done, are also requests in their own sense. These ones that follow are more personal requests. Now, as we enter into this new part of the Lord's Prayer, there are two things that you should notice from this. First, it's by teaching us to ask for our daily bread, our personal need, that we're brought to see that God is interested in us personally. That God is interested in you personally. Second, God gave you this prayer through Jesus Christ because he wants to know what's going on in your life. He knows it, of course, but he wants you to express it to him personally. He wants you to confess it to him. Parents, just like you know what's going on in the outside of your children's lives. You you can see it from an outside perspective and you know that there are things going on. You still love it when they speak to you and when they confide in you. God gives us the second half of the Lord's Prayer as a gift to show us that we too can approach Him in this way. Brothers and sisters, God grants us the grace to ask for our daily needs. And we'll, ask, and we'll see, first of all, that we ask out of thankfulness, second, with one goal in mind, and third, that we ask in hope. If you were here last week, you may remember that we just finished dealing with the third petition, your will be done. There's a temptation to, when we pray these words, to try and make a go of it on our own. We know this. We know what to do and we know what we desire to do. But when it comes to carrying out what to do, it's another question. It's like we touched down on in Romans 7. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I do not do, that I practice. We also know that outward change only helps for so long. That if there's no inward change, we'll fall back into old patterns. So when we pray, your will be done, we ask God to supply all we need in order to truly transform. More than that, for spiritual staying power and growth, we need to look to him for strength. But recognizing that this is true for our spiritual life, we also need to recognize that it's true for our physical life as well. We don't just need God to supply us for everything we need for our souls and for our wills, but we also need to ask him for everything that we need for our bodies. So what's the purpose of asking God for what we need for body? Is it merely for the sake of asking? Or is there more to it than that? For this, it's helpful to take a look at the category in which our Catechism places the Lord's Prayer. You kids who are in Catechism class may remember that there's three parts to the Heidelberg Catechism. In order to know how we live and die in the joy of the comfort of Jesus Christ as our Lord, we first need to know how great our sins and misery are. We need to know who we are in relation to God. Second, we need to know how we're delivered from a wretched situation. And third, we need to know how to be thankful for our deliverance. Makes sense, doesn't it? First, we need to know what our current state is. What do we need saving from if Jesus is the Savior? then second, how did he go about it? And third, how do we respond to that? The Lord's prayer is found in this third part, our thankfulness. And that's important to understand as we look at this request today. Why? Because asking God for what we need is also a part of our thankfulness. Now that might seem like a funny way to look at it. How can asking God for things be an expression of our thankfulness? Psalm 119 verse 175 says it clearly, let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. Let me live that I may praise you. God, the psalmist says, I don't just need you for life, but I need you to live. I need you to live for. Let me live for you. When we ask God to provide for us, we're asking Him to provide for us for a reason. We're recognizing Him as the source of everything that is good, of everything we need, body and soul. And we're responding by saying to God, provide me with that in order that I may praise You. Provide us with all our bodily needs, as the Catechism puts it, so that we may acknowledge that You are are the only fountain of all good. We're praying that God may provide for us so that we can further praise and glorify Him. It's with the purpose of thankfulness in mind that we pray to our God. And that brings us to our passage of Matthew 6, verse 25 to 34 today. In this passage, Jesus is teaching His disciples an important truth. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous one of Jesus' sermons. And in it, he has just finished teaching his disciples in this portion of it where their priorities should lie. He's teaching them that their thankfulness toward God should result with them laying up treasure in heaven and not on earth. And then he concludes with saying no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Don't have divided allegiances, he says. No one can serve both God and money or God and any other priority for that matter. But it's not just those who hoard here who are gathering up treasures on earth that he wants to speak to. He also wants to speak to those who are specifically anxious about their provision, about their being provided for from day to day. So having said that no one can serve both God and any other master, he points them to a truth. This truth. That if someone's priorities have truly changed, And if they look to God for everything they need, if they don't have divided loyalties, then all that ought to matter to his hearers will be the kingdom of God. There's no more kingdom of self that we're asking God to prop up. There's no more mixed priorities that we're asking him to feed. There's just a single-minded, clear purpose in asking Him for this. And if that's the case, we won't truly need anything apart from our daily bread, our daily food. Our day-to-day sustenance is all that matters, and that only because it keeps us running, it keeps us moving in service of the kingdom of God. Let me live that I may praise you, We lose sight of this change of perspective in priorities, though, don't we? We sometimes get so wrapped up in our lives and in our priorities that we lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of the fact that we have everything in Christ already, that we wouldn't even have what we have today without Him, and that He is the one who will get us through from one day to the next. So Jesus calls us here not to feel secure in ourselves and not to try to find our security in something else. You can't have two masters. You can't serve both the kingdom of self and God. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. So he teaches us to be humble, looking to God for everything. And so we're taught to ask for one reason only. We're taught to ask God for our daily bread in order to pledge our allegiance, to show that we're pledging our allegiance to one Master, our Father in Heaven, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as the Catechism puts it, grant therefore that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in you. But Jesus knows our every weakness. He knows how difficult this can be for us to follow up on. And so he gives us more to look to, to comfort us. Having asked, teaching us to ask as a pledge of allegiance to our God, to withdraw our trust from everything else and put our trust in him alone. We're also taught to ask in hope, to ask in patient expectation. In the following verses of Matthew 6, we get three therefores that deal with this. Three in a row that we'll look at. The first therefore contains two beautiful pictures from Christ. He says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and let your and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value to them than they? Think of the birds that you see around you these days. With the snow, it's harder for them to find food, and as the winter progresses, it'll be even more difficult. So you might see them gathering around your feeder in greater numbers. But you recognize that they're not fed by that alone. That everywhere they go, they are being fed, they are being provided for by God. Jesus says, are you not much more valuable than they? Again, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's saying, think of the splendor of a field in full bloom. Each individual flower there is clothed in beauty. Your heavenly Father takes care of all of that. Will he not take care of you? Are you not worth much more than that? Brothers and sisters, in Christ's eyes, it was so much more than that. may not always feel like it. It's true. You may have times where you feel like if you were to disappear from the earth right now, you'd just be a blip on everyone's radar that is gone and No one would really notice the difference. They would carry on with life. But to Jesus Christ, you are worth more than all the jewels of the world. You're precious to God. Will he not provide for you? One chapter further in Matthew 7 verse 9, he gives you a picture to reinforce this. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in His suffering and death, you put your faith in Him and see Him as the only way to salvation, then you are God's children. If you know how to provide for your children, those of you who are older, and if you kids know that your parents know how to provide for you, how much more Ought you not to trust that your heavenly father will provide for you? You know, sometimes we limit ourselves because we haven't yet reached the point where asking God for things is as reflexively normal as it is for a child to ask their father for things. Sometimes we think it's a question of better discipline. But Kevin DeYoung puts it well when he says you don't need discipline nearly as much as you need a broken heart and faith. You don't need an ordered life to enable prayer. You need a messy life to drive you to prayer. You don't need to have everything together to pray. You need to know that you're not together, so you will pray. And because of all these things, you realize you need prayer. If you know you are needy and believe that God helps the needy, you will pray. Pray, ask in hope, recognizing that our God, who is our Father, will respond. He takes care of the needs of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He'll take care of you too. The second, therefore, we read, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not to say that you shouldn't concern yourself with saving or providing for yourself at all. This is not to say that you shouldn't concern yourself with sowing, reaping, or gathering into barns at all. That's being a good steward. A bird that's fed by God doesn't just sit on a wire waiting for itself to be fed, it still forages for food. Our responsibility and our day-to-day tasks remain. The Apostle Paul later highlights this in Thessalonians, to those who claimed that they were being pious and waiting for Christ's immediate return by standing by and doing nothing. They were selling property and they were sitting back and they were saying, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to do nothing. Well, he responds to that in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. If a man will not work, he will not eat. So that's not what Jesus is getting at. But what Jesus is doing is getting them to re-examine their foundation. Man doesn't have life if he just has enough food. He doesn't have life if he just has clothes. Luke 12, verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. But if you look look in hope in the little things, you'll look to God in hope for the big things as well. If we begin by looking to God in hope for the little things, He'll provide for us in the big things. We can have hope that God will supply us with everything we need in body through our daily work, through the communion of saints, and through random kindness of strangers. And that's a guarantee that he will provide us with everything we need for souls. Gives us reason to look in hope. And so he concludes this, therefore, with seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. In the final, therefore, to encourage them to look in hope, he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's not saying, don't deal with anxiety. He's not being callous. But Christ is saying, recognize the fact that anxiety won't help you you can have a measure of control over it you can choose to have anxiety control you or you can make an effort to control it now this is not in the short term of course anxiety attacks show that trying to take control in the middle of one of those doesn't work so well and I'm sure that there are those among you among us who have experienced that But thinking in the long-term sense, are we going to let anxiety control us, or will we learn to control it by redirecting our focus? Christ is calling us to acknowledge our anxiety, saying, I'm scared about what might happen, but not to suppress it. Rather, he's calling us to recognize who holds the future in our hands. If you feel it beginning to well up, you don't suppress it, but you acknowledge that it's there. Saying to yourself, this is here, but it's not something that defines me. And you make a deliberate effort to turn it over to God. A deliberate choice to trust. So look to God for what you need. The natural response to that is, but I can't help it. I can't help it. It just keeps on rising up. And it's true. That sudden feeling that rises up within you is something that you won't always be able to hold onto, to control. And every time, every time you feel it well up, turn it over to God, to God who can help you, Turn it over to God again and again and again. Sit down and memorize sections of these passages and bring them to mind again and again. Growing in trust takes deliberate effort and development. This happens in relationships as well. Think adoption. Does an adopted child immediately trust their new father? I only have to think of a family that I know, a little, they've adopted a little girl and a boy to recognize that no, it's not something that happens immediately, it's something that takes time and growth. But in this family, this new father is a true father. He's claimed this child as his own, as his real child. This child is no less a child of his than any of the other kids in his family. And so he works at it from his end in order to show this to his child. He makes countless efforts to show that he's trustworthy. He proves it time and time again. And this is true with God as well. He proves it to us time and time again. That he is a trustworthy God. That he provides for us in the little things. That he even takes care of the birds of the air. And that's what Christ promises. God will take care of it. He'll show that he's trustworthy. If this adopted father's promises are steadfast to this little girl and little boy that he's going to be their dad and he's going to provide for them, then that will be the case. It's going to be a long process as the child trusts and then distrusts and then trusts and then distrusts. But there's a little more trust each time. And that doesn't take away from the fact that this person is that child's father. God's trustworthiness is so much more. His dedication is so much more There is hope in the sureness of His promise. And you can grow to trust Him to this extent. You can grow to be able to trust Him to the point where you can say, do not worry. I do not worry about tomorrow. I'll let tomorrow worry about itself. Begin today and put your trust in Him and turn over the future to him. If you're here today for the first time and you don't believe in him, I encourage you to do this. To put your trust in him. And you'll find him to be the most trustworthy one. Amen.